reality is that most people who have cryptocurrencies today have it for the same reason that they would have a stock. It's an asset that may go up in value, down in value, and move to sell it. But what gives cryptocurrency value is not that necessarily. It can, but that wasn't the point. Blockchain in of itself, which uninitiated blockchain is sort of the technology that enables these different things. There's a number of different things that blockchain does. It's not just that all these different cryptocurrencies were created for the hell of it. Um, Those some of them were. A lot of them have specific niches or you know, they had some purpose in mind by the creators and they you know, went after a problem or a solution in a slightly different way than some other cryptocurrency. But the original cryptocurrency, at least in terms of going mainstream, was Bitcoin. And the creation of Bitcoin is a little bit more mysterious. You know, no one really knows, at least not publicly, who the creator was. You know, there's a name thrown around. Um, or the person that, or at least the entity, or the pseudonym, or the uh, internet identity of who kind of released it and talked about it. But from a broader viewpoint, what the decentralization of that system does, it takes in some ways, it replaces the law with encryption. So, an analogy would be, and this is a very really loose analogy, right now, what stops me from breaking into your house and stealing something is the law. Now, I mean, there is, you know, the chance that you could be there and shoot the intruder. But, I mean, let's just talk about an empty warehouse full of stuff. Or just an empty bank, right? The thing that stops anyone from being able to take just that stuff is the law. So, it's going to come after them and try to retrieve it. But, when somebody steals, they're literally taking ownership of that piece amount of time. So if you think about it from that perspective, that's what stealing is. Now, when you think about that when it comes to these digital assets, right, and these digits that show up on your screen, how does someone steal digits? Well, what they're stealing is like stealing a check or a someone, right? They're stealing at a high level, the right to have money given to them based on what an account holder says. And that's, of course, about the law. So you could say um, someone just showed up one day with an account number that just mystically appeared um, you know, in Bank of America's system and said they had a million dollars worth of value in their account. 
And Bank of America said, nope, that's not real. I'm not going to give it to you. The only thing that, any, that that person could do to try to force Bank of America to give them that money would be to go to court. They would have to go to court to prove that that account was created and that at some point, somewhere, you gave somebody some value which resulted in a digit or some numerical value being assigned to you based on whatever you gave them, and then that account was holding that value. So if it was a fake account, you would never be able to do it. So what you have to do in order to achieve actually stealing it is you have to trick the system into believing that the account is actually yours, that it's legitimate, and you have to hurry up and actually give, get that entity to give you cash or to somehow transfer those digits into a legitimate account in a way that that financial institution is going to honor or abide by their obligation to disperse any funds of value based on whatever number is listed in that account. And you can see where you start to run into some things get flimsy, I guess. And the way that that digital asset is protected nowadays is just through encryption and tracking. So, you have all these transactions that take place. They're recorded. You know, there are sort of like clearinghouse companies or whatever you want to call them that sort of manage these transactions. And they do some things similar to what blockchain does. But in a in a non-automated way, right? They're triggered. Something is triggering these things, like swiping of a debit card or entering a, entering a PIN or you know, hitting transfer on a computer screen uh, to send money to someone. Like, there's some sort of triggering event. And so, because of that, because of the way that works, there's all these records of transactions because anytime some event happens, that event has to be authenticated by whoever is either initiating it or through some sort of chip and pin scenario. And even and so you can just imagine sort of how the information has to flow, right? You have just for a normal transaction. You got a vendor who needs a certain amount of money transferred them in order to, to exchange some goods. You have an individual who puts a debit card into a machine or a chip reader, that chip is holding information, account information, essentially, that allows a transaction to happen. That chip and that system needs authenticated through a PIN number. And then when all that information is in the right format, the financial institution will transfer those digits from one account to another institution or to another account of the same institution. And there's a record of it, right? There's a record of it every single time it happens. Um, largely because, one, there's laws that require an entity to keep financial records of what it's doing, right? If there wasn't, money, money laundering would literally be, the, be easy. Like, you wouldn't, money laundering wouldn't even be a thing. You just won't be able to tell where money came from, period, no matter where it's at. So there's financial transactions. Um, how to be kept the record of. And then there's just 
the bank's practical reason for keeping financial records. So they know where everything went and where everything came from in case something goes wrong. So that they can, one, make sure they don't get cheated out of money. And then, two, make sure they don't get sued if somebody else gets cheated out of money. So there's really three different reasons, at least three different reasons, for a financial institution to keep very good financial records of every single transaction that happens. And that's not even counting all these clearinghouse companies and the vendors and their motivations and requirements for keeping transactions. We haven't talked about taxes yet and the requirement to keep track of financial transactions. With taxes, you need to know where they came from and what different transactions, what the purpose of those transactions were so that the tax scenario can be answered uh, accurately. Where blockchain kind of comes in is that it still does the same kind of verification of getting got to have funds in the account. It's coming from, it's got to be a valid place for those funds to go. And then it's all got to be secure. What blockchain card does, I'm not going to get into the weeds, I'm just going to kind of give you a high level purpose, the function is it automatically does all of that stuff as part of its very existence. Um, trying to think about how to best describe the difference without getting into the weeds, how blockchain works. But there's no trigger man. There's no person that, that has a record and that are tracking it left and right, front and back. It just happens as part of the code. The way that a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency token, all that, the very nature of it is that it's, it has its kind of, you know, its whole history of its life on there. It's almost like DNA. And every time it moves, there's a transaction that gets added and every version of itself has a copy of all these transactions. So there's really no way to fake it. Think of it like, well, it's hard to actually do a very practical analogy in terms of trying to spoof something. It would be like having to use a biometric like retina scanner at a thousand places simultaneously, right? One person can only be in one person at one place. So it kind of leverages the ability of digital information to be multiple places at the exact same time. And then they get compared against each other. And so as long as everything is the same, then the transactions are validated and security is maintained. And there's really Attacking the blockchain in that way is not really possible. Not that attacking a blockchain or some strand of code is not possible in any formation. You just have to you have to do the same way on every single instance of where it existed, or at least a majority of the places that it existed. Now again, I'm trying to be very high level, being very vague, not qualifying all these things that I'm saying. I'm trying to just give you sort of the gist of why blockchain is secure and how it does that, how it secures itself without tracking the financial transactions.
that's really what I'm trying to explain here without getting into the weeds. And if you're interested in that, I would just say go read about it, try to learn about it, watch the YouTube videos. Because we don't really need to talk about that. Other than that we need to just share an understanding that the blockchain and the cryptocurrencies they're able to be secured and enforced inherently without the need for government, without the need for law. They're sort of self-validating. It's like back to the analogy of a warehouse where it's only being protected by the law. You can practically break into any structure that's physical, right? Enough dynamite, enough heat, you can melt anything, you can get in there, and you can take it. And then the only way that the owner of that ever gets it back is if law enforcement uses the authority of the government to go track it down, find that individual, and seize it, and seizes it, and returns it to you. Same kind of thing with the financial transaction world that we live in with digital. You've got a bank account, someone hacks it, transfers that money out. There's nothing you can do about it. You are dependent on either the institute, the bank, or the government in identifying who it was, or identifying those funds and returning them to your account, meaning that they actually can get stolen. The blockchain and cryptocurrency theoretically is there so that it's not even possible to steal it. It's, it's not possible to make a transaction that's fraudulent. And again, I'm not here to debate you know, the theoretical imperviousness of cryptocurrencies, blockchains, and things like that. Like, I'm not saying that there might not be exceptions, there might not be some small vulnerabilities here and there, especially for some you know, un less sophisticated blockchains. So I'm saying is that's the idea, that's the point or one of the points, that it secures itself. And it's like having a warehouse that you literally can never get in. So the question is, what good is a warehouse that you can never get in? Because you're not storing things inside the warehouse. In this example, the warehouse itself is what's valuable. Just having it. It is something that literally cannot be sold. If you think about it as a building, how many buildings do you have? It's like you know, it's like land. I, you cannot steal someone's land, right? You just can't take it. You can't pick up a square mile and just run off with it. Right? Property, real property, is where it is. And that is the only way that it exists. You can trade rights to it. You can license it, sell it, rent it out, do all kinds of things, but it doesn't move. So the value is the land itself and whatever else somebody thinks it's worth. Blockchain is similar in that crypto coin, or whatever you want to call it, tokens, whatever embodiment exists, it's only worth what someone thinks it's worth. And you can never do anything with it other than what it's designed for. Right? Just like land can do nothing but just sit there and exist on its own. You can't use land is not a tool. You can do things on it. You can dig into it. You can 
your jobs, you can do other stuff with the land, but the land itself, the space, the area, it's there and it's always going to be there. It's kind of like, and that's similar uh, in blockchain, like those tokens, they're there, they're in the blockchain, they're not going anywhere. You can transfer them, you can trade, you know, trade them, transact them, and when you do that, you know, you're creating new, creating new information in the blockchain, but it doesn't really change the the nature of the transaction. I don't know if that's making sense. I don't know if everyone's following that analogy. But you can't change it. And you can't change it in this scenario because there's literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of copies of it that get compared against each other all the time. There actually is some photography processes out there that are very similar to this. Even, you know, back in the old days, I mean, by old days, I mean like ancient times, what you would do to sort of enact a similar kind of security is what you would do is you would write the same code and message out a hundred times. And then you'd send it to everybody. And then the only way that they could know that the message they got was true was have those hundred people come together and compare all their messages. And as long as all of their messages said the same thing, they would know that those were the right messages. But the one guy who has a message that says something different from the other 50 or the other 100, that's, that's the one that's not true. And so it gets thrown out. It gets kinked. No one, no one follows what's on that document for any reason. That's sort of the way the security is sort of a verification uh, mechanism like that. So you have a number of different concepts rolled into one. You have this, you have this secure verification process along with an automated version of it that just happens inherently because of software code, which removes human actors from the verification process and therefore from the security process to an extent. The bottom line is that cryptocurrency is theoretically very secure and anonymous because of the way it is structured and it doesn't track transactions in the traditional manner. And it verifies itself through copies of the blockchain and you don't know where transactions came from and you don't know where they went. You just know maybe theoretically like the address. And again, I don't want to get into that kind of detail if you want to read off on that your own because that's not the point. The point is the perspective or the perception. And so the perception is that this is sort of a, I don't want to say off the grid type financial transaction, but it's a, it's a way to move money around without knowing where it went or where it came from. Now, that's a perception. But if we just go back to what I said a few minutes ago, most of the average Americans and even corporations who are buying these cryptocurrencies, they're doing it through an exchange in which they have an account, login information, and, you know, they're using real currency, like, you know, digits that I'm talking about, dollar sign digits, from an account to trade those digits for another digit representing an amount of a certain cryptocurrency. Now, in some of those situations, depending on the different exchange and how people are setting up their crypto wallets, maybe 
some of the individuals actually are storing, you know, their blockchain key that represents their portions of the cryptocurrency, but most of them probably aren't, which means it's no different than a bank, right? If the FBI or state government or somebody wanted to go in and pull financial transactions for cryptocurrencies, they'll be able to see that those people bought and or sold cryptocurrency on that exchange. They might not be able to see where it went, um, and then maybe not where it went after that, but from an individual user standpoint who's buying and selling on these exchanges, there's really not a whole lot of anon anonymity there. And <clears throat> that is an important fact because the people who are buying it this way are treating it like a normal asset. They're not using it for untraceable money, for lack of a better term. But the fact that it can be used in the right way as untraceable money is concerning to some people. And we've seen governments get very, very concerned about this. And what you've seen recently, if you've paid attention to the news in this area, is that some of the more authoritarian governments in the world, like China, are considering putting very strict controls, if not outright banning cryptocurrencies. Now, the problem for China is <clears throat> they don't want to do that because they're making gobs of money off the West by Bitcoin mining over there, and so you don't bite the hand that feeds you. But some other places, and even places that aren't, I guess, traditionally considered to be very authoritarian, like India, India's considered banning it, and I don't, I haven't read any articles from India. I don't know what their particular concern about cryptocurrency is, but there's really only a couple concerns that a government ever has, right? Either crime of some sort is being committed, and therefore there are some sort of victims that are, that are not being protected or becoming victimized by cryptocurrency, or it's about money, right? It's about avoiding taxation. <clears throat> and that's really the same concern that the U.S. is going to have about this, right? And interestingly, though, the recent things that went on with GameStop and Dogecoin and the Robinhood trading app, those triggered some different concerns. And concerns that aren't necessarily unique to cryptocurrencies, Concerns that are unique to everyday Americans, right? There were just a, a lot of different perspectives on that GameStop scenario where you essentially had collusion by a bunch of average Americans to manipulate the market in a way that was going to stick some financial institutions who do the same thing. And it was really kind of, well, if you can do it, I can do better kind of scenario and it was interesting to see the responses because what you're talking about in collusion is that they were essentially pull, pulling, pooling their effort to do the same thing to move the market. It would have been no different than a mutual fund. The difference between a mutual fund 
And what happened with the Robinhood trading app is that instead of one entity with a lot of buying power doing something like that, it was a bunch of individuals with a little bit of buying power each that equaled it, right? A mutual fund or some other kind of stock portfolio financial entity that deals, you know, in millions of dollars of stocks every day, their whole purpose is to pool resources in order to make money for the different people that invest in it, right? The difference is it's usually like a portfolio manager or a broker or something who is managing their fund managers, and they make the decisions about what you're going to buy, what they're going to sell, um, and it's done in, I would say, a more structured way than just talking on some chat forum and then everyone kind of going and doing it their own way. But fundamentally, at sort of a core level, there's not a whole lot of difference, um, right? A difference would be one person, you know, like uh, Jeff Bezos or just some rich guy saying, guess what? I'm going to spend $10 million on GameStop and stick it to the short sellers. They could have done that. Um, nothing would have stopped an individual investor from doing that. And, you know, outside of some really obscure interpretation of, of some certain kinds of laws, it would be, it'd be hard to imagine a way that that's not legal or that it's illegal because the short sellers themselves are manipulating the market by buying a bunch of stocks or pretending to sell a bunch of stocks thinking that when the time comes when they actually have to fork over the money, they're going to be cheaper than when they actually bought it. So there's really, it's kind of the reciprocal in a way. So it's really hard for the short sellers to bellyache about what happened because it's kind of somebody giving them a taste of their own medicine, so to speak. The problem is it never happened before, right? We've never seen this kind of collusion. It's almost like, you know, boycotting. It's like the opposite of boycotting. Instead of boycotting GameStop stock because someone's trying to short sell it, that would actually play into a short seller's hand. And boycotting is something that's perfectly legal. It's enshrined, you know, almost in our American culture and our American political identity as being one of those, you know, free choice way to protest, be able to have political expression through boycotting and things like that. And this was just kind of, again, it was the reciprocal of a boycott. It was the opposite. They were boycotting, selling GameStop, therefore driving the price up. Um, and it might be possible to get to sort of a, a criminal intent if someone's only purpose for doing this was to cause injury to someone else, right? Uh, you know, there's torts out there. People could be sued for, like, torturous interference of business, things like that. But what these guys on Robins were really doing, they were making money, right? They were buying, driving the price up, increasing the value of their portfolio, and some of them were turning around and selling it and making money, doing the exact thing that the short sellers do, right? Manipulate the stock market, in order to make money. So there's really no tears to be shed here. And yet, there's a lot of people out there who felt like they needed to shed some tears. You could see it. They came out and said certain things. They were careful about what they said because they understand the hypocrisy of whining about it. 
but it was a little bit of a wake-up call. And by that, I mean it was a wake-up call, especially to Congress, because some of these people, right, I mean, I hate to say it, but you can go, especially the House of Representatives, I mean, you can walk through the halls there, and, you know, you can run into somebody who might have just been a, you know, used car salesman, got elected. And not to say anything bad about being a used car salesman, that's probably one of the harder jobs I can imagine to make money at. But, being a used car salesman probably means that you aren't plugged into the intricate and sophisticated layers of the financial system and know what the rules are, and so you would be surprised by something. And it really, it got some attention. And they were already talking about cryptocurrencies and taking a look at those, seeing what needed to happen. Right, the IRS already has a thing out of filing their own taxes. Did you or did you not buy cryptocurrency? You know, in some cases they might be able to find out if you're on one of these exchanges. Um, but if you just did some sort of informal transaction where somebody you don't even know sent you some cryptocurrency to your wallet address, and it, no one's going to know unless you cash it out. No one would ever know. That's kind of the individuals can do transactions now. Um, between cryptocurrency and until you actually try to turn it into real money, no one will ever see it, which allows you to really, you could do 500 transactions with cryptocurrency and have that money end up somewhere and cash it out, and it would be literally almost impossible to figure out where it went from the blockchain alone. Obviously, other types of evidence could exist, you know, like if you, you know, use that cash then to buy something, or, you know, I mean, normal things that exist in the world, people's lives, could still point to the fact that they were doing something shady or avoiding taxes or whatever, but it would not be nearly as easy as it is for the government to figure out what you're doing. And that means that they lost control. And that's why the Robin Hood thing frightened so many people, because they realized that they don't have the kind of control that they thought they did. A bunch of random, you know, probably under the age of 40, probably mostly male jokers sitting around in this thing, decided to do this thing, and it created waves, and it created millionaires. Um, you know, some of them guys went from a couple, couple three, four, maybe $10,000 in their pocket to millionaires by what they did. And that lack of control scares them. And it's the same thing that scares them about cryptocurrency. And that is why you see, definitely, you know, the authoritarian governments, they don't want any part of it. Like, they're just probably, they're all probably going to ban it. what's going to happen is, one of those countries is going to ban it. They're like, well, they're doing it, and we're going to ban it. Right? Because you don't got to be the first. You can't be accused of, like, you know, being this anti-democratic financial person. Like, just easy to follow the herd. That kind of brings us to, like, what is the United States government? And that's kind of coming full circle about the last piece that I want to talk about is now that we kind of understand the concern, understand why it's a concern, understand how the functions make it a concern, what do we think federal government is going to do about it? What might the state governments do about it? And can we imagine or speculate 
any kind of partisan split that's going to be here. Because And I find this one to be very interesting, because here's why. If we just do a stereotyping, uh, we'll just say the left, we'll say Democrats, we'll just put those together. They generally seem to be about individual empowerment or anti-the-rich or anti-financial markets that benefit the rich. But they're also very pro the government getting their hands on things, very pro snatching tax, tax dollars, tracking financial institutes, making sure people pay their fair share. So where does that put the Democrats on cryptocurrency? Do they want to empower individuals to have a tool to potentially beat the financial markets and the financial top 1% of their own game? Or is it more important to make sure the government maintains control and so they take a position in opposition to sort of the empowering, the individual empowerment that you can get through cryptocurrency and these other means. And then if you look at the right, Republicans, they're very usually you know, pro-business, pro-financial freedom. You can do what you want to make money. Pro-financial markets, pro-banks, kind of. Um, and then they're kind of anti government control. They want a smaller federal government. They want to spend money, less taxes. And so, where do they fall? Do they fall on the side of cryptocurrency, where we can empower people to take control, take power back from the government and keep it in individuals' hands? Ooh, but risk the upsetting of the financial markets that, that all these corporations and high net worth individuals use to keep, you know, to keep their lifestyles the same? You know, or they side with the businesses and want to kind of mitigate against the risk of the instability that that kind of empowerment at the individual level could cause, right? Because you can see how there's kind of four quadrants here on the political spectrum of concerns for each of the political parties. And you could actually see pretty easily and speculate that if you divided the left and the right into tops and bottoms, where the top of each party is who's focused on government control, and the bottom of the party would be those who are focused on individual empowerment. And in that scenario, you could see a version where the top of the Republican Party and the bottom of the Democratic Party would be aligned in their opinion on cryptocurrency. And then vice versa, the top of the Democratic Party and the bottom of the Republican Party, they would be aligned in their positions on crypto. Clearly it's all speculation because that's assuming there's like some sort of 50-50 split, you know, in priorities in the Democratic and the Republican Party between what's more important, financial system stability versus small government, individual empowerment versus anti- rich people, kind of, you know, socialistic type meanings versus big government, stay in control, use the government to try to fix everything. There's a whole lot of cross-motionation going on in there, and it's an interesting topic, and so it's very, going to be very interesting.
in my opinion, um, to see how this is going to play out. And so, there's one more example um, that I think is worth exploring to sort of help us understand this potential a little bit better.